0: Having a look at Mark chapter 12, verse 28 to 34, God speaks it to us. Uh, we want uh, him to be at work in us as we hear his word preached. So let's ask him to do that work. Let's pray. Father, please uh, tune our heads and hearts. Uh, please uh, show us what's true and real. Uh, please work in us that we would uh, respond to you as we ought that we would see more clearly how we ought to treat one another and and others, uh, that we would see how these things uh, sit within the wider reality of your great love and kindness towards us in your Son. In him, amen. Life's well, complicated. There are uh, some weeks when it can't just feel like it's the same again and it's kind of simple because it's just the same again. Uh, other weeks the unexpected arrives. Uh, sometimes it seems obvious what's best uh, in the situation that arrives. Other times well it's a struggle. It's a struggle to know what's best even before it's a struggle to do what's best. Uh, What one word will help you organize the bits and pieces of what God wants from you day to day? What one word will help you organize the bits and pieces of what God wants from you Monday to Sunday? This passage gives us one, and I'm going to move fairly quickly through the passage and then come back to look at the, um, look at the, the details. Uh, Last week we heard Jesus answering Pharisees who tried to trap him, uh, Sadducees who meant to ridicule resurrection. Verse 28 shows us a scribe who's been listening in. He's an expert in the Old Testament law. He thinks Jesus answered the resurrection question well. So he asks, which commandment is the most important of all? Perhaps he asks because it's something he's been thinking about. Uh, probably he's heard uh, something about Jesus healing on the Sabbath. Uh, maybe he's heard about how Jesus has taught his disciples to skip the ceremonial hand washing. Maybe even he's heard Jesus' criticism of traditional laws uh, being used as a way to skip God's law. In chapter 10, we got to hear Jesus point uh, to one of the commandments and say that it's given as a a way to deal with a situation stained by sin. Uh, We've heard him list six commandments about how to treat people when someone asks him about how to inherit eternal life. This scribe asks Jesus, which commandment is more important than all the others? In verse 29, Jesus answers, The most important is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. A bit of Deuteronomy and a bit of Leviticus, a familiar answer perhaps. I I suspect most of us have heard it before. And because we've heard it before, it's an answer that we might have given if we're asked what are the most important commandments. We'd probably say something like this. We'd be giving it because we trust that Jesus is right. But this scribe, he tells Jesus he's right. And we get the sense that he's looking down a little as he gives his verdict on Jesus. You're right, teacher. Good answer. You've said truly that he is one and there's no one other beside him and to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Did you notice he repeats what we usually don't? This is a bit about God being one. I think he also compares the commands to things we wouldn't usually compare them to. You know, I think Ten Commandments... He mentions burnt offerings and sacrifices. We need to give some thought to those details. Just now, though, notice that the scribe does call Jesus teacher, but he's given the impression that he hasn't been taught. He gives his verdict on Jesus' answer. It's right, it's true, it's scriptural. He's more sincere than the, the ones who came to trap or ridicule Jesus. But still, he didn't come to learn from Jesus. He came to test him. He just told Jesus he's passed the test. (laughs) He picked good commands. But Jesus says something to turn the table on him. He judged Jesus, but Jesus judges him. Verse 34. Jesus thought the scribe's answer was wise. Then he tells the scribe where he stands you are not far from the kingdom of God. He's correct about the commandments. He's close to the kingdom. He's near eternal life. But not in the kingdom. Not an heir of eternal life. If he keeps going the way he has been, he won't be raised to eternal life. If nothing changes, he will face God as his condemning judge. We're not told whether anything did change. We're not told what the guy did. We are told that after that, no one dared to ask Jesus any more questions. The scribe seemed more sincere than all the others, but in some sense, his question sits with theirs. Perhaps he hoped Jesus would answer in a way which would give ammunition for a trial. Certainly, he came to judge Jesus. And at least in what we're told, he doesn't see Jesus clearly. He still thinks he stands beside or maybe slightly above Jesus as he says, well done, Jesus, good answer. So when Jesus came into Galilee after John's arrest, he proclaimed, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. This scribe sees the heart of God's commands. He has some idea of what to repent of but he hasn't got the gospel. He doesn't see Jesus. He isn't following Jesus. He sees Jesus as a teacher, but he doesn't yet see him clearly. He doesn't see Jesus as Lord and Christ. He hasn't gone all in with Jesus. He hasn't denied himself and taken up his cross to follow Jesus. He has rules for living a good life, but he hasn't begun to trust the one who can give him eternal life. He has rules which show him he has a debt he could never pay, but he hasn't begun to trust the one who came to give his life as a ransom. So that's Jesus' interaction with this scribe. I want to go back now and look carefully at the commands about loving God and loving others the heart of what they're discussing. But to get there, we need to look at that bit we usually skip, the bit we skip when we mention the commands. Hear, O Israel, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is one living, true, and holy God. And as the scribe says, there is no other beside him. There is one God. Now, the first readers of Mark included Gentiles who had history with other gods. and Unlikely Jews who had history being unfaithful to the one God with other gods. They'd lived with choices. They'd faced Monday to Sunday choices about which gods to serve. How much to serve each god. Different gods promising power, prosperity, fertility, health, victory. They'd think and decide what they wanted most and how much, uh, how much of themselves to commit to the God who would give them that thing, half to the God who promised what they wanted most, a quarter to another God, 10% to another couple, and the dregs for the rest. They divided themselves up among the gods who promised power, prosperity, fertility, health, victory, and the rest. If, in fact, there were many gods who controlled different aspects of our lives, we'd have daily decisions to make. We'd need to decide which gods to serve and how much to serve them because of how much we want, what they promise. But it is not so. There are not many gods. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. He is the living, true and holy God of the entire universe. He is our God. He is the God who took the initiative towards us. The God who made us, the God who speaks the Bible to us, who tells us how to live well in the world He made, who condemns with justice, who condemns the guilty with perfect justice, who promises to forgive all who trust His Son. God who sent his son to bear our guilt and take our shame he is our God and we owe him everything there is no power or authority above or beside God he rules above all and over all so since in fact there is one God you and I still have daily decisions to make but it's a different decision. Are we going to get in step with reality or live out of step with it? Are we going to thank and serve the one who is worthy or share ourselves with something unworthy? Because he is the one living true and holy God. We owe him everything. We owe him every aspect of our being. There's no space for other gods before him. No space for making idols which inevitably misrepresent him. No space for treating his name and reputation as weightless. There are commands about those but putting a fence around those edges and saying it's inappropriate to do that doesn't capture how we should treat him. So when Jesus is asked about the greatest commandment he says who God is And then quotes the command, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Heart, soul, mind, strength. Now we can analyze the words. Uh, Heart in the Bible is what we would call head and heart. It's our thinking and our affections. Uh, Soul is our self seen from the inside out, desires and feelings. Mind, our thinking and understanding. Strength, our energy and efforts. We can analyze the words, but the point of the command is clear. It's total and absolute and every bit of us commitment to God. No peace uninvolved. No peace shaved off and given to other gods or priorities. It is life, thoughts, emotions, actions centered on him. Centered on him as he is. That's going to mean Bible's open because he speaks them to us. It means seeing him more clearly as he speaks the Bible's words to us. It means taking time to see his perfections. Thanking him for his kindness. Trusting him as he works out his purpose. growing with him in a, in a world stained by sin wrestling with our own sin and submitting to his spirit. Rejoicing in anticipation of the day when we'll see him and sin no more. Participating in his purpose to see his people keep in step with his spirit and not lose heart. Sharing his concern for uh, and sharing his gospel with the people of Brisbane and the nations who don't yet know Jesus. And a whole lot more. It means moving past rule keeping and box ticking to relationship with the living, true, and holy God who is worthy of our undivided devotion. I'm not talking about that, I've already drifted into talking about how to love uh, your neighbor uh, as yourself. Love for God who made us and who placed us in relationship with others involves treating them the way he designed us to treat them. He designed us for a relationship with them as well as with him. He's woven into creation a good pattern for our relationships. He speaks that pattern to us in his word. Love for God has very practical implications for how we treat people. There's no place for murder or adultery or theft or false witness or coveting. Now, there are commands against those. But putting fences up at the edges of what's inappropriate doesn't begin to capture how to treat others. Jesus quotes the commands, a command to do, not a command to not do. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, in saying that, Jesus assumes that everyone has a basic self-interest, He's not saying make sure you love yourself and want good for yourself so that you can want good for others. He assumes we have a basic self-interest and he's saying look after others the way you look after yourself. Look after them with the dedication and devotion you look after you. Now I think we can get lost with this if we make this command the command. It's the second command. On, on its own, uh, we can do away with the other commandments about how to treat people. I love to give me what I want, so if I love you, I love to give you what you want. And if you, what you want doesn't fit with any of those nasty Old Testament commandments, well then we'll not worry about the nasty Old Testament commandments. I love you and give you what you want anyway. That way love wins. It could work that way. It could work that way if at any point God gave us the impression that we are our own best guides. If you knew instinctively what's best for you, if I knew instinctively what's best for me, then love's clear goal would be for me to give you what you want and you to give me what I want. But neither our heart's desires nor our carefully thought-out opinions are good guides about what's best. (laughs) They're not even good guides about what's good. We can't trust our instincts. We can't trust our thought-out opinions. We're not very good at knowing what's best. Actually, we're pretty practiced at doing harm and then calling it good. We don't know what's good for us, but we can. We can know what's good for us because our good and loving creator shows us. Part of loving him and trusting him with ourselves is trusting him that he knows what's best for us, better than we do. That he is our best guide. That he shows us what's truly good for us. Yes, we love ourselves by pursuing what he says is good. And he shows us what's truly good for others. So we love others by pursuing what he says is good for them. God shows us what's truly good. Love for God trusts him about what is truly good. Love for others pursues that good for them. What's all that got to do with the other commandments in the Bible? Well, they help us see what's truly good. They're how God guides and shows us what's truly good. See, really mark together. We've seen Jesus disagree with uh, Israel's rule teachers. He's told them they mis- misunderstand the commands. He's told them they misapply God's law, but he's never told them to forget God's law. He keeps insisting that the problem is they don't understand it or that they do misapply it. He keeps telling them they should aim to understand and then live what God says. So love doesn't leave nasty commandments behind. Love learns what's good from those commands. That's why Paul wrote in Romans chapter 13, "Owe no one anything except to love each other. love isn't an alternative to the law love isn't freedom from commands it's going where the commands point love is going where the commands point Uh, those fences at the edge of of what's most inappropriate they help us look back and see what love is and how love treats others so murder 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 is an overflow of anger. So the commandment you shall not murder at the edge demands a stop to anger too. Actually, verbal violence comes out of the same heart as physical violence. So the commandment you shall not murder demands a stop to insults too. Love doesn't just avoid doing harm. So the commandment you shall not murder demands a determination to reconcile, to bring an end to your anger and the anger of the other person against you. So love doesn't act on anger with physical violence or verbal violence. Love brings an end to its own anger and aims to end the other person's anger too. Just trying to capture a bit of what Jesus does in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. The, the, part, the command about murder. He does the same sort of thing in relation to adultery and, and oaths. And a, a few weeks ago, as we looked at the after-divorce law, we saw, we saw him talking about how that law set us up to uh, pursue as much good as possible in a situation stained by sin. Here he's telling us that the details of the ancient commandments can be gathered up in two commandments. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This guy's response to Jesus in verse 33 includes his comment about those commandments being much more than whole offerings and sacrifices. It's a comparison we didn't expect. I think that when you look back at Mark, he's probably mentioning it because the day before Jesus was in the temple giving his verdict on how they were using the temple. Uh, chapter 11, verses 15 to 17, if you want to read a little later. He said that the, they had made the temple a den of robbers. He stopped anything going through the temple, which means that there were no burnt offerings and no sacrifices, while he stopped everything. The scribe's comment connects to what ancient prophets had said. Things like how it's better to obey than to sacrifice. How they told the Israelites that their sacrifices were pointless if there was no justice and kindness and humble walking with God. Not, not the ancients nor the scribes saying that burnt offerings and sacrifices are pointless and unnecessary. They were saying they were ineffective and offensive when they were offered by people who showed no love for God and no love for others. Jesus spoke with the scribe on his way to the cross. He's already said he, at this point in Mark that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. A page or two two later, we see him agonizing as he anticipates the Father pouring out his wrath, the judgment we deserve. On the cross, he offered himself up once and for all. These two commandments, they don't make Jesus' death unnecessary. They show us very clearly why it is necessary. Because none of us have lived it where we've broken them, we've offended the one living, true and holy God. We've done harm to others who we ought to have loved. Which is why Jesus gave himself for us. Why we needed him to go to his death. And his great act of love for us In giving himself, well, it colors the way we understand what it means to love others. It can and can and must include all manner of things, but it must also include this, the desire for their salvation, the desire for them to come to know God as their forgiving father and to hold firmly to Christ as the Savior. It's love which devotes itself to seeing one another keep in step with the spirit and not losing heart. It's love which orders our lives around seeing the people of our city and the nations make Christ Jesus in whom we delight. Now, none of us and no one in Brisbane or Australia or Japan or Eurasia, none of us will end our days and comment casually I lived with an undivided devotion to the one living, true, and holy God. Every aspect of me has been always and only for him. I've treated everyone with the other person-centered love that he calls me to. These commands, they show us, don't they? They show us that we need the forgiveness that Jesus brought They show us everyone needs the forgiveness that Jesus alone has brought. They send us to trust Jesus for rescue. And as his rescued people, they give us an organizing idea for what God our Father and Christ our Savior require of his forgiven people. Here's the word to help you organize the bits and pieces of what God wants from you Monday to Sunday. The word love. Not an aimless emotion or a vague intention for good. Love for the one living, true, and holy God. Love for God who made us, who took the initiative to save us. Love which sees knowing him as our highest, best good. Love which sees he is our best guide to what's good and best. Love which is developing into an undivided devotion to pleasing him in everything. It's love for God and love for others. Love learnt from God who first loved us. Love which learns what's good from God who is our best guide. Love which lays down its own interests and pursues the good of others love which has an eye on eternity because everyone's immortal and everyone needs jesus let's pray father we thank you that we can read and hear this teaching and hear it not as a condemnation which leaves no way out but as an exposure of how far we fall, short we have fallen, confess that we have not lived with that undivided devotion to you. Confess that we haven't even loved others as you call us to love them. Father, please forgive us. Please forgive us through Jesus, who did bear our guilt and take our shame, who gave his life as a ransom. And Father, please, as your forgiven people, strengthen us that we would live more and more. Monday to Sunday, as we ought, lives shaped by love, love for you and love for others. Father, please work these things by your spirit for your glory, for our good, and for the great good of those you send us to serve. In Jesus we ask it. Amen.